At 2 p.m. on July the 11th, 1910, Campbellton was a prosperous town of 6,000 people on New Brunswick's North Shore. Only two hours later, it would be completely destroyed in a massive inferno. You're listening to Backyard History, the hidden stories that happened in your own backyard. The podcast version of the weekly history column running in newspapers across the Maritimes with your host and author, Andrew McLean. That Monday morning had dawned bright and clear, although it was unusually windy, in the wealthy town that called itself the Gateway of the North. It was another hot July day in an already dry month. It had not rained for more than a week. The town boasted two schools, had a large hospital, it had 14 mills, it had a large woodworking factory, two foundries, and a machine shop. It also had a progressive and effective city leadership that had invested heavily in public utilities, and so its citizens enjoyed indoor running water powered by a gravitational system flowing from the nearby hills, and it even had a steam-powered electricity plant. At 2.30 that fateful afternoon, the fire bells rang out. An ember from Richard's mill had caught a shed on fire. The fire department showed up quickly, as well as many concerned onlookers. After 40 minutes, the firefighters, with their single horse-drawn wagon, were getting the upper hand on the fire. However, a single cinder blew onto a nearby pile of wooden shingles which burst into flames. The burning shingles were blown by the severe winds onto nearby other buildings, igniting them on fire. For a second time that day, the fire bells rang out in Campbellton. The official report on the fire recounted that five major fires were now burning out of control. It said, The wind swirled the sparks far and wide over the doomed town. By that time, there was no stopping the flames, for fed by the high wind and fed by the flammable material on all sides, the fire reached alarming proportions. Kimbleton's fire department valiantly tried to stop the flames, but because so many people were using water, the town's water pressure failed. Nearby Dalhousie, dispatched all of its firemen and equipment to help try and put the fire out. Their generosity actually nearly resulted in a disaster there too when a cookhouse caught fire that afternoon. However, the fire was put out by citizens. The report continued. In every part of the town, red flames were bursting. Dense clouds of smoke rolled towards the sky and settled like a pal over the town. The roaring of the flames sounded like a low rumbling thunder, accented every now and then by the sharp crack of some explosion. By then the heat was intense. As the fire spread, it gained momentum. Smaller fires were merged into the larger until Campbellton was an immense, seething furnace. In a desperate last ditch effort to stop the conflagration, the firemen tried to dynamite the fire. It didn't work. Only 15 minutes after the second fire bell had rang, the sickening realization set in amongst the townspeople that they had to flee their homes. 
The official report continued. Almost stunned by the terrible disaster overtaking them, the people of Camelton rose to the occasion and wasted no time in lamentations against fate. Everybody worked, even little children clinging pale-faced and anxious to their parents carried valuable possessions. The sick and feeble were carried to places of safety in the hills surrounding the town. The last branch town to Dalhousie departed, overflowing with people. Soon after the heat of the flames burned the railroad ties and twisted the rails. People made efforts to save what they could from the flames. Some grabbed blankets. Others rushed to get their life savings, which were often hidden in mattresses. City clerk John Reed rushed back to his office to pack his fireproof safe with all of the books and the records it could hold. One's mind sometimes refuses to function properly under stress, he commented about observing one dazed man rushing down the sidewalk, carrying a chamber pot. While he was stuffing his safe, his landlady appeared with a large metal birdcage and asked him to save her pet canary. He didn't. John Reed left the canary behind in his cage to die. It's a strange thing to say, but even after he lost his entire city and everything he'd built in life and worked for, John Reed would go on to deeply regret leaving the canary behind. The poor canary would appear for years in his diaries, with him wishing that he let it out of his cage. I really thought, he wrote years later, that I could leave the cage on my desk, and hours later I could come back and everything would be fine. I never thought the whole city would burn. Perhaps that beautiful canary would still be alive if I simply opened its cage door. The police station had been abandoned, with three prisoners remaining in its cell. Everyone forgot about them, except for a Mrs. Cumley, who lived in the apartment above the station. Although she was fearful of the consequences, she unlocked the cells and she allowed the three men to go. John Reed recounted that the worst part of the fire was seeing the fear, the panic, and the anxiety of parents whose children were still missing as they had to flee. Ultimately though, he wrote that the children always turned up. He recounted one father who he described as driven half mad with fear, carrying his young children fleeing the flames in the chaos, he forgot his 11-year-old daughter, who was sick and bedridden. A neighbor dropped the worldly possessions that he was trying to save to carry the young girl to safety. As the flames spread, Campbellton was cut in two, with families separated by a wall of flames that trapped hundreds of people along the waterfront. Big steamships and little sailboats alike, struggling against the high winds, would take loads of people to the safety of nearby Tidehead and Matapedia. Amid all of this chaos, Campbelltonians must have paused to watch in shock to see the incredible surreal moment. There was a train that was bound from Moncton, seemingly completely unperturbed by the fire, which drove right through the flames without stopping. According to sources, by which I mean the conductor's wife later told this to the Moncton Transcript newspaper, apparently the train's conductor was asleep. According to her, her husband was sleeping on the job, and the crew were unable to wake him, so the train continued to drive right through the flames. The majority of Campbelltonians had fled into the hills surrounding the town. Two babies were born in open fields as people escaped. Both of the mothers and the babies were healthy. The official report described that night. From the boats and the steamers in the harbor, and from the hills beyond the town, 
Thousands of weary watchers witnessed the destruction of their town. Families were separated. Men watched the work of a lifetime disappear in a single night. Reports of death came in every few minutes. No one slept. Miraculously, there would actually be no deaths in the fire, but amid the confusion, rumors spread of mass casualties. It would take a full week to account for everyone and reunite families. As night fell, and 6,000 now homeless people watched the flames devour their town, it began to rain, soon turning into a torrential downpour. No one had thought to save any lamps, so they were completely in the dark on that cold, wet, windswept night. They were also completely alone. The town had burned the telegraph line so quickly that messages about what had happened weren't set out. Even their own government didn't know what happened. Help, it must have seemed, would never be coming. In that bleak moment, however, several leading merchants, led by George Mackenzie and John Harkwell, called a meeting to organize a relief committee. Even as the flames still burned their homes, during that meeting, five incredibly ambitious words were spoken that would become a slogan and a defiant symbol of hope in the beginnings of what would be called the Spirit of Campbellton. Rebuilt in a single year. While the people of Campbellton must have felt completely alone and abandoned by the universe that night, the process of getting help had actually already begun. That train, whose sleeping conductor had driven right through the burning town, was carrying word of the disaster to the world. William Harding, conductor of ICR train number 39, had woken up, and he was racing towards Moncton. When he got there, he told the people of Moncton how the North Shore town of 6,000 people had been destroyed in two hours, saying, the flames just seemed to roll over the whole town. Possibly before the provincial government had even learned about the fire, ordinary people in Moncton were already springing into action. 2,000 flyers were quickly printed and plastered all over Moncton, telling of the disaster and calling on its citizens to help. Moncton City Council immediately called an emergency meeting to mobilize the city's resources to send help. Campbellton totally destroyed was the Moncton Transcript newspaper's headline in a special issue printed as the ruins of the New Brunswick town still smoldered. Ordinary Monctonians, without any kind of centralized instructions or any kind of organization, began showing up en masse by thousands at the train station with massive amounts of food, tents, bedding, goods, money, and medicines to go to Campbellton. Meanwhile, back in the hills surrounding Campbellton, the breaking of the dawn's light, when the scale of the destruction became clear, was consistently described as the worst moment of all. The official report into the fire described the scene. In the half-light of the early morning, the sky was dark and murky, with the air heavy with smoke. The wind veered round the north and was cold and biting, rendering the condition of homelessness even more miserable. 6,000 people with misery depicted in their faces gazed with gloomy eyes at the awful scene. City clerk John Reed described it as the picture of desolation, smoking ruins everywhere, here and there still burning, chimneys like specters still standing, and light and telephone wires curling in the heat, lying on the streets which were barely distinguishable. 
To make matters even more miserable, it was pouring rain. Mothers and fathers, John Reed continued, carrying in their arms children, sought to protect them from the downpour. People had tried to set mattresses, furniture, and dishes, and even rolled up carpets into piles in the middle of the roads in the hope that their possessions might survive the flames, even if their homes were consumed. John Reed wrote, The heat was so intense when that morning arrived that only pitiful piles of ash remained. At 8 a.m., however, the first rays of hope arrived. Word of the disaster had spread to the small neighboring towns, and people had been up all night preparing food and gathering clothes. As the Campbelltonians were at their darkest moments that dawn, wagons carrying aid from Bathurst, soon followed by boats arriving from Dalhousie, began to appear. The sheer scale of the destruction and the massive amounts of people would be far too much for the small nearby communities to provide for, however. Even as their shops and businesses still smoldered, the city's merchants made a defiant show of opening that next day. Meanwhile, the people of Moncton had spontaneously assembled so many donations that it filled up an entire train, which was dispatched to Campbellton. That train from Moncton, filled with donations from ordinary people, would arrive long before any kind of coordinated government response. When it arrived, it was met by hundreds of people who called it a godsend. J.S. McGee, a Moncton city clerk who accompanied the train, recounted, A great many of these people had no food for 32 hours. The case was so urgent we simply handed food out of the train windows. There was no disorder, no panic. But, little children slept last night in the open fields with little protection save the covering of the corner of a mother's apron. McGee soon learned that the people of Campbellton had already organized themselves into committees. They had been feverishly working to unite the separated families, to begin cleanup, to organize future transportation out of the ruins, and to distribute food when it became available. The Moncton donations included hundreds of tents, thousands of blankets, and enough materials to erect four rudimentary cookhouses, which were quickly distributed by the committees. When McGee entered a coal shed, one of only four buildings to survive the fire, he walked in on a woman giving birth. It would be two days after the fire, before two trains full of donations from St. John, along with soldiers and government officials, showed up in the first kind of coordinated government response to the disaster. A reporter from the St. John Telegraph accompanied the train and described Campbellton as miles of windswept waste with here and there a crumbling pillar or a gaunt leaf-stripped tree trunk seeming to mark ruined hope uncanny in its air of desolation. However, the reporter said, it would be difficult to find people happier under the circumstances in which the destitute people of Campbellton find themselves. He was also concerned about the incessant heavy rains, and he warned about the risk of an outbreak of infectious disease. This very real fear of an outbreak of diphtheria or typhoid led to a coordinated effort by the governments of New Brunswick and Nova Scotia, which included 52 officials being sent up from Halifax. In the end, the only outbreak of disease was one single case of chickenpox. 
The Telegraph reporter wrote an update only five days later, saying that the cases of suffering and destitution are now gradually disappearing. Busy scenes of activity are present in various forms. In the midst of a heavy downpour of rain, they continued their building operations, and in many cases, snatches of song accompany the blows of the hammers and the sounds of saws. Nine days later, that same reporter would return to publish an update, writing, New buildings have been fairly pushed into the air, and in a short time will be accompanied by those fortunate enough to start life anew. Campbellton's shocking destruction and defiant resilience quickly became a cause celebre. The Montreal Star would first coin the phrase, the spirit of Campbellton. Internationally, photos of the destruction were widely published. Financial donations came from as far away as Germany and the Philippines. The financial donations were certainly needed for reasons other than just the relief efforts. Campbellton had managed to build its fancy modern developments, like its steam-powered electricity plant and its gravitational indoor water systems, by taking out massive loans. As we all know, then, just like now, the banks aren't going to let some minor detail, like your entire life burning to the ground, get in the way of your regularly scheduled payment plans. This was also a time when fire insurance was exceptionally rare, and these banks wanted their money back. So a disproportionate amount of Campbellton's relief dollars would actually end up going to these major Canadian banks whose names, in many cases, we still know today. Boston, however, fondly remembered New Brunswick's generous response to their own major fire years before and dispatched several trainloads of donations. A notable exception to this outpouring of support, however, was Fredericton, whose lack of support from Campbellton was noted with disgust across the province. Fredericton was the only city not to send a train of donations, and then the mayor publicly refused to donate money to Campbellton. And then, in the face of rising criticism, the city decided to organize a bonnet hop as a fundraiser. A bonnet hop is a fancy dress dance party, which was seen as quite inappropriate when thousands of people were homeless. Another person who didn't exactly endear himself to New Brunswickers during the Campbellton fire was King George. He wrote a telegram describing how distressed he was by the news of the fire. But instead of sending it to New Brunswick, he sent it to Nova Scotia. King's secretary is not familiar with geography of maritime provinces, snorted the headline in the Moncton Times. Meanwhile, the rebuilding began in earnest almost immediately. A massive amount of hiring of carpenters, bricklayers, and workers had gone on. The Campbellton Graphic newspaper described the reconstruction as saws and hammers could be heard at any hours of the day or night. Workmen swarmed over the ruins of the fire-ravaged town like inhabitants of a molested anthill, and soon lofty walls of brick and concrete raised their bulky forms in defiance of a fate that determined rebuilders of Campbellton refused to accept as a final decree. This took a lot of work. Citizens quickly organized the rebuilding with a committee headed by businessman John Harkwell. Harkwell had owned a large woodworking factory that employed 200 people before the fire. It produced high-end, expensive hardwood floors that were popular amongst the wealthy elites in Montreal and Toronto. His business was gone, destroyed in the fire, but he and his employees developed plans to rebuild. 
Rather than making hardwood floors for the wealthy, they developed an innovative mode of building a house using prefabricated materials. Using these pioneering methods, they were able to erect an entire house in a single day for only $300 a house, which would be something around $8,000 in today's money. Entire neighborhoods of these identical homes were quickly built. It was a race against time and the elements, however. The slogan had always been rebuilt in a single year, but the housing had to be completed ahead of winter. The first frost came early in 1910. With still 150 families living in tents, George Mackenzie, the chairman of the Campbellton Relief Committee that had formed even as the city burned, went on tour. He traveled around New Brunswick asking citizens who had already donated through church groups, women's groups, and individually so much for even more money. $150,000 would be raised, which would be around $4 million in today's money. Only four months after the fire, the first snow fell on Campbellton. The St. John Telegraph sent that same reporter back to check on things. He noted that 500 people a day were eating at communal cookhouses and that children were running around without shoes. However, a school featuring five teachers operated, banks were open, there was a garbage removal, and there were sewage services running, and there was even a system of public sinks that were all operating. He wrote that a mere four months after the town of Campbellton had been completely destroyed, that order had been created out of chaos. That was Backyard History with your host, Andrew McLean. Thanks for listening, and stay tuned for another hidden story that happened in your own backyard. Produced by Jordan Lozier.